Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today, uh, I thought we were due for a little bit of fun summer pirate time. Uh, so <laughs> this one is kind of a fun story. It's a little kooky. Uh, this is a subject that goes by two names, depending on the source you're looking at. Sometimes you will hear it as Libertatia, with a T-I-A ending. Some of it is Libertalia, with an L-I-A ending. That's one of those things that even in different printings of the same book, you will see it both ways, depending on the printer's decision, I presume. Uh, the other part that's fun is that this may or may not have been a real thing. <laughs> yep. But it is an interesting thing to examine. Um, the primary account that we have of Libertalia is from a general history of the robberies and murders of the most notorious pirates. This is in volume two. So if you go looking online and you only get volume one, you will not find this and be like, what? You said this was in here. Volume two. That one published in 1728. Uh, the writing lists its author as Captain Charles Johnson. And we're going to circle back to more specifics about its authorship at the end. We've talked about it on the show before as well, but we will revisit it. And the idea that a bunch of pirates wanted to create a utopia of equality, which is what this story is, might seem a little bit far-fetched. But it does sound a lot like other utopian experiments we've talked about, uh, just set earlier on the timeline and with a high seas theme. And there are also some instances we know about of pirates kind of trying to do that, uh, which we'll talk about at the end. And it's also in a place in the world that there were definitely a lot of pirates. Yes, we talk about that at the end as well. Um, And Libertalia, which in truth, as we said, might be completely fictional, would have been settled sometime uh, probably in the late 17th century. And that's just based kind of on backdating from when the book was published because we don't have much in terms of specific dates beyond that. Uh, So we're going to go through this whole story of this unique pirate settlement as laid out in uh, the general history by Johnson. And then we will talk about the other author who usually gets credit for writing a story and whether that history has roots in reality. The story of Libertalia begins with a man named Missel, who is a Frenchman born in Provence to a good family. The true name of the family is purposefully left out of the general history of pirates to safeguard their reputation. While Misson's father did pretty well, there were so many children in the family that he knew he needed to go make his own way in the world rather than depending on any inheritance, which is a popular pirate origin story. Yes, indeed. This one, kind of, as we go through, you'll find checks kind of all the boxes of popular pirate stories. (laughs) But it also has the fun one of, we're not pirates. Uh, So, Misson was educated in humanity, logic, and mathematics. And then, at age 15, was sent to Angers in western France for a year of military training. And per Charles Johnson's account, which he claims is sourced from Misson's own writing about his life, Misson's father had a life as a musketeer in mind for his son, but Misson had decided on a life at sea. So Misson's father set him up with letters of recommendation, all of the items he might need, and then arranged for a volunteer stint aboard the Victoire, which was a ship commanded by a relative named Monsieur Forbin. The young Misson aboard the Victoire departed the port at Marseille and ventured into the Mediterranean. Misson learned about navigation and life at sea, and he spent his early time on the Victoire learning all that he could from the more experienced men aboard. 
according to the story, he just was constantly asking them questions. Uh, and he loved being a sailor, and he was well-regarded because of his really well-mannered demeanor. But when the Victoire uh, set into port in Naples, Misson's life course changed. He got permission from the captain to go ashore and to travel inland to Rome. But what he found there was really disheartening. He was really chagrined at all the licentiousness and the indulgence of the papal court. He really lost his faith, deciding that, quote, all religion was no more than a curb upon the minds of the weaker, which the wiser sort yield to in appearance only. And while in Rome, Misson, who was pretty devout at that point, went to confession. And in doing so, he met a, quote, lewd priest by the name of Caraccioli, who was Dominican. And while making the acquaintance of a man of the church who was not exactly a pillar of piety, solidified Misson's perceptions that the church was corrupt, he and Caraccioli became friends, and they actually would remain companions for the rest of their lives. Caraccioli told Misson that a life in the church was a pretty good gig. It came with friends and opportunities, and, quote, the ecclesiastical state was governed with the same policy as were secular principalities and kingdoms, that what was beneficial, not what was meritorious and virtuous, would be alone regarded. He likened the papacy to a monarchy to explain the situation to Misson, and he explained his own contempt at the whole structure, saying, quote, For my part, I am quite tired of the farce and will lay hold on the first opportunity to throw off this masquerading habit. The priest went on to say that he was worried that by the time he stayed in the church long enough to make a tidy living so that he could leave, that he would be too old to enjoy any of it. So Missal proposed that the priest join him on the seas. And so the two men traveled together to Livorno, Italy, to meet back up with the Victoire. And with Missal's recommendation, Caraccioli was welcomed onto the crew. Almost immediately, Caraccioli got a taste of the dangers of sailing life. The Victoire was engaged in a long and brutal battle with two other ships. Caraccioli was shot in the leg in this conflict, and it was a massive struggle, but ultimately the Victoire won. There wasn't much of value to take from the bested opponents, but an estimated 15 Christian slaves were freed in the process. After the battle, the battle-damaged Victoire headed back into Marseille for repair, and Massant used the downtime to visit his family, bringing Caraccioli along with him. He also brought with him word from the captain that Misson had conducted himself admirably at sea. Yeah, he had a nice little letter to show his parents that he was doing a good job. Uh, after a month of rest, the captain of the Victoire sent word to Misson and his friend that they were to set sail again, leaving from Marseille to go to Rochelle to pick up merchantmen and sail for the West Indies. And as the crew waited at Rochelle for the next phase of the journey, the merchant ships that they were to join with weren't ready to set sail, Misson and Caraccioli decided to take work on another vessel in the meantime because he did not like to be idle at all. They got into some adventures along the way, but the more important part of their escapades, as related in the general history, was their ongoing discussion of religion and God. Through these discussions, Misson was adopting a deist philosophy and continuing to just turn away from all organized religion. There's a chunk of text that's several paragraphs long in which the writer seems to be sorting out his own thoughts on the matter of God and the soul. Caraccioli continued to speak on religion, both with Misson and with the other sailors on their journeys, and as such, he became something of a religious leader. 
simultaneously because both Caraccioli and Misson had become highly skilled sailors, a lot of the men they traveled with were really looking up to both of them. Yeah, there's a, a sort of wonderful irony that Caraccioli wants to leave the church because he thinks organized religion is not for him either, and then he sort of becomes a religious leader after that. <laughs> That's kind of a, a, a fascinating twist. So on a cruise to Martinique, the Victoire was engaged in battle by an English man of war with 40 guns called the Winchelsea. The early battle took a serious toll on the leadership of the Victoire. The captain, second captain, and three lieutenants were all killed very early on. So short on officers, Misson and Caraccioli, who had always been quick to step up when needed, began giving orders and leading the remaining Victoire crew. They were victorious, but this was actually by accident, because for reasons unknown, the Winchelsea exploded, killing all of its crew save one lieutenant, who died two days later aboard the Victoire. And after the conflict with the Winchelsea, Caraccioli saluted Misson as captain and told him that he must make a choice to return to port and be at the mercy of other men's decisions or to take the Victoire as his own and make his fortune. Misson opted for freedom, but stated to the assembled crew that, quote, a great number of them had resolved with him upon a life of liberty and had done him the honor to create him chief that he designed to force no man and be guilty of that injustice he blamed in others. Therefore, if any were averse to the following his fortune, which he promised should be the same to all, he desired they would declare themselves, and he would set them ashore whence they might return with conveniency. They could basically opt out of this sort of life of piracy, uh, but his offer was instead met with shouts of, Vive le Capitaine Misson! Which is also the origin story of most of pirate crews. Yes, I'm going to be cool, you guys. You don't have to come with me. But if you want to, let's go. Let's all go! Yep. (laughs) We're going to talk about Misson's life and leadership, but first we will pause for a quick sponsor break. So Misson immediately set the tone of his leadership by giving the crew the power to select their own officers. Then their next destination was agreed upon as a group. Misson suggested the coast of Spain. All of the men were in accord with that course. Then they had to decide on their colors. And at this point, Caraccioli was quick to clarify that they were in fact not pirates, quote, but men who were resolved to assert that liberty which God and nature gave them and own no subjection to any farther than was for the common good of all. So he advised that they fly under a white flag, quote, with liberty painted on the fly. Next, the belongings of all the officers who were slain in the fight with the Winchelsea were brought on the deck, and the money on board was put into a chest, which was declared to belong equally to all the men. The lieutenants were asked to make an assessment of the men on board and determine who had immediate need of clothes so that they could be prioritized to receive the clothes of the deceased men. Misson followed this up with a speech that the men should all show one another brotherly love and cast aside any grudges they had and that they should see one another as equals. Quote, for when equity was trodden underfoot, misery, confusion, and mutual distrust naturally followed. It sounds so idyllic. Everybody love one another. We're all in this together. 
but it was not all hippie love from Misson, as he also declared war on any ports that would deny them entry and any who would not give them what they needed. He was basically saying, so we know we're not pirates, but other people might not get that, and if they treat us like we're pirates, we're going to have to get piratical. Uh, <laughs> he did also admonish his men to always treat prisoners humanely and generously for the sakes of their immortal souls. The Victoire and its crew then did some plundering in the most polite way possible. They took sugar and rum from a ship without violence and then let it go. They made fake runs at privateers with no intent to actually engage them, betting that the ship would try to take them, which meant that they could then defend themselves. At one point, Misson told a privateer captain that he would plunder nothing from the captured ship, but that they would strip it of guns, and the privateers had to promise not to engage in piracy for six months. They made their way around the globe for a while, and eventually Misson had two ships under his command. He had taken a ship whose crew was so charmed that they all opted to join with him. And at this point, Caraccioli was named captain of the second ship, which was named the Bijou. And the two vessels made their way around the Cape of Good Hope and then on to Madagascar. Misson allied himself to the royal family of an island near Madagascar in a conflict with a neighboring kingdom. He also married into the royal family, and so did Caraccioli. Men of the crew married non-royal women of the island of Johanna, which is modern-day Anjouan. And Misson and his men helped to defend people of the island against invaders. Yeah, there was actually an invasion by the queen's brother, that they defended against, uh, and they were always the good guys in this story. So not long after those events, Misson made his way to nearby northern Madagascar, and he scoped out an area of land that appealed to him, and then he went ashore, and he found good soil there and available fresh water, and he decided that he wanted to settle a town there. And this place that he envisioned would have docks and it would be an asylum, a place for aging men of the sea to live out the remainder of their lives in peace. And he would call it Libertalia. Misson waited for his entire crew to agree to his plans before he actually began the project. All of the men agreed to the plan and they immediately set to work on his designs. And within 10 days, they had cleared 150 large trees from the area. He requested that the royal family of Johanna loan him 300 men to help uh, with the project in return for the assistance that had been provided in their defense. And after a great deal of debate among the leaders of that island, some of whom feared that enabling the settlement could lead to their own enslavement down the road, the 300 men were loaned for labor. Yeah, a lot of that discussion centered around, wait, we're going to help them build a place from which they could actually come after us? Uh, and it was like, well, maybe, but that's better than saying no to them and having them come after us now, right? Like, th this way we at least have a chance that we'll still all be friends. And Libertalia was set on a harbor, and the first structures that were built were armed forts on either side of it. And then homes and shops were built, and the town slowly began to take shape. Efforts were made to make friends with the native peoples of Madagascar. Uh, of course, that is one of those things that is also always framed from a very European perspective. So take that as a note if you go looking for this story. Uh, and Libertalia was on its way to becoming the peaceful settlement that Misson had envisioned when he first ventured onto the land. 
Libertalia was anti-slavery. This is something that comes up throughout this account. Misson and his men liberated slave ships whenever they came across them, and on occasions when slaves were offered to them as barter, they would always accept them and then immediately set them free. Misson wanted the people who chose to settle in Libertalia to be called Liberi. The idea was that it was open to all and that it transcended any prior nationality and signaled a community of equals. Libertalia wasn't Misson's only focus during this formative time, though. He still took the the victoire out to challenge ships and take their goods, and he met with a mix of good and bad luck on the sea. In one skirmish with a Portuguese ship, he was able to take a large sum of money, which was about 200,000 pounds, but he also lost 56 men in the process, making it the greatest loss of life that he experienced in this kind of conflict. But he made his way home to the developing town of Libertalia. And from its rudimentary beginnings, the land was worked to grow food, and the town was able to barter with other villages. They ended up with several hundred head of cattle. But in addition to growing its footprint and its own crops, Libertalia also grew in population because other people came to live there, including the English privateer Captain Thomas II. Misson had first encountered two when the latter's sloop appeared in the waters off the coast of Madagascar, It appeared there might have been a potential idea that they were going to take this new town. But eventually, things led to Tu and his men joining the colony at Libertalia. If his name sounds familiar, he was part of our episode about Henry Every and the raid on the Mughal fleet. He pops up in a lot of places. He was a very busy world traveler. He was. Misson and Tu didn't always see things in the same light, though. Even when two first arrived in Libertalia, Misson was also coming in with a Portuguese ship that he had taken. Misson quickly realized that if they were going to keep the prisoners they had taken, they would need men to be on guard against an uprising, which meant he wouldn't have enough men to go back out to sea. And while he had established the settlement as a home base and as a place where any mariner could call home, he wanted to continue his voyages as long as he could. He was still building his settlement and was, to be clear, getting supplies and fortifications and wealth by taking them from ships that he bested, even if he was being polite about it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that he was stealing from people, uh, even if he seems like a great, magnanimous dude. Yeah, I'm going to build a pirate utopia funded by piracy but I'm not calling it that. (laughs) You guys, we are not pirates. Unless people treat us like pirates, and then we kind of got to be pirates a little bit. Uh, There's a moral flexibility in the mix of this whole story. Uh, So he had planned to just let the ship, the Portuguese ship that he had taken, and its prisoners go. He also just didn't want to take on the load of having to see to the needs of all those captured men. Like, to him, this was just way too great a burden for any value they were going to get out of it. But two, and even Caraccioli, were not fans of this idea of letting everybody go. They knew that if they set those prisoners free, all of Europe would soon know about Libertalia and would invade. Misson called a council and explained his position, and the men of the council agreed with him. All the prisoners were brought before Misson. He told them that he knew that they would cause his demise, but that he could cause their deaths if he wished and that he needed them each to swear an oath not to work against him. Then he gave each of them back any belongings that had been taken from them and set them to sail on a ship that was stripped of all of its guns. Yeah, I feel like so much of his leadership is based on the, like, we cool? (laughs) 
<laughs> like, that's his whole approach. Are, 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 are we cool? Uh, the next move for Libertalia was actually away from this everybody be cool, freedom and no rules approach that it began with. But we will talk about that after we first hear from one of our sponsors. While the idea of a utopia always sounds great in theory, in practice, it is really hard to throw a bunch of humans together, tell them they all equally share in the land and the work, and have the whole thing chug along without any conflict. They are humans, after all. And while things seemed to work with Misson's original group, after two and his men became part of Libertalia, conflicts started to arise. On one occasion, Libertalia was invaded by Portuguese sloops. The battle played out, and Misson's men were victorious, and they treated the defeated men who survived with kindness and hospitality, until they saw two of the men who had been set free under oath not to bring any trouble into the settlement. These two men were tried for perjury, found guilty, and executed, and this caused some men to question Misson's leadership. While Misson and Caraccioli saw this execution as a matter of self-preservation of their way of life, some of the men saw it as a contradiction of everything they'd been told about Libertalia and about its values. Eventually, Caraccioli was able to convince everyone of the necessity of the execution, but it took a lot of effort and rhetoric. Yeah, he sa- sounds, based on this account, like he was really quite a good public speaker, uh, but he was often convincing all of the men of, of what should be done. But then, not long after this, there was an argument between Two's men and Misson's. The nature of this argument is a little unclear, although the account says that Two's men started it. Uh, Two thought that the matter should be solved with swords, but Misson and Caraccioli wanted to negotiate some sort of accord. They did not want to set up their new little utopia as a place where you settled your disagreements by potentially killing each other. And while they sorted out the matter at hand and they figured out how to settle this particular argument, all three of the captains came to the conclusion that it was actually time for Libertalia to have some actual laws. So everyone, the entire colony, was gathered so that the three commanders could explain this plan. They had to have some sort of government. And Misson, Caraccioli, and Two proposed a democratic system with laws made by the people. The men were to to divide themselves into groups of 10, and from each group, one representative was to be chosen who would assist in setting up the laws and the government of the settlement. Property and land were to be divided evenly, but then it would be owned by each man. It would no longer be a system of collective ownership. On the first day that the newly selected lawmakers met, Caraccioli made a speech and proposed that there should be a Lord Conservator, basically a president, that would be elected and would serve for terms of three years. So he could be reelected, but every three years they would revisit that. And all agreed, and of course, Misson was immediately made Conservator. And two was named as Conservator Admiral, and Caraccioli was Secretary of State. And for ten full days, this new governing body worked to set up the laws of Libertalia. They began, under Caraccioli's office, to even develop a new language for Libertalia that incorporated the various native languages of the many people who had settled there. They carefully balanced the manpower that was needed to maintain their animals and their crops against their needs for naval reinforcements. Yeah, two was like, let's build our navy. And they were like, hey, somebody's got to feed the cows. Uh, (laughs) So they kind of were figuring out Uh, Some pretty advanced kind of balancing systems about what their society could handle. 
Uh, And Admiral Two then set out to gather more members of the colony, hoping to meet with ships at sea and offer to take volunteers to bolster Libertalia's numbers. He also went and visited uh, places he knew and sort of told people about it. And as part of his canvassing for new citizens, which he first began by finding a settlement of his former men who had not joined up with Libertalia but had started their own camp, he spoke really passionately about Libertalia and its government built around fairness and equality. But also, he was clear to say that the settlement was also willing to work with other governments, saying, quote, if you will go to America or Europe and show the advantage which may accrue to the English by fixing a colony here, out of the love we bear our country and to wipe away the odious appellation of pirates, with pleasure we will submit to any who shall come with a commission from a lawful government. But it is ridiculous to think we will become subjects of greater rogues than ourselves. But while Tu was visiting with his friends and potential recruits to their small paradise, he was surprised when Misson himself found him and told him that everything they had built had been lost. Misson told Tu that the native peoples had attacked the settlement, killed Caraccioli and many others, and that only he and 45 other men had managed to escape aboard the Bijou. Yeah, this was uh, at a point when Two was kind of stranded. There had been a big storm, and the Victoire had actually uh, capsized, and many of the crew were killed, but they were able to to get the ship. And Two thought that they should head to America and make a fresh start. And there was even discussion that, like, hey, we know how to do this now. Let's make another settlement. But Misson was so devastated at having lost all of his work that he just had no heart for another attempt. So Misson took the victoire and set out with a plan that he would meet Two again on the Guinea coast to regroup. But that meeting never happened. The victoire sank during a storm, and Misson went down with his ship. So it has come up on the show before, but uh, just to recap, since the 1930s, the history of the lives and bloody exploits of the most noted pirates, the, uh, sometimes the general history of pirates, you'll see it listed in a number of different ways because on some republications it has gotten new titles, uh, has been attributed to journalist, spy, and novelist Daniel Defoe. And that attribution came about through the work of John Robert Moore, who was a Defoe biographer, and it has been pretty widely accepted as truth at this point. Yeah, there are some other candidates that people name, um, including Nathaniel Mist, who was a sailor and a publisher, but it's so frequently associated with Daniel Defoe that a lot of times that is who the author is listed as in the library or wherever with, like, no little asterisk or anything. Yeah, there are definitely versions that don't really even talk about how it came to be that it gets that attribution. So, remembering that Defoe's most famous works were novels like Robinson Crusoe and Maul Flanders, with little evidence to back up that he, uh, to back up what's contained in it, this account in a general history of the robberies and murderers of the most notorious pirates is pretty much believed to be fictional. I mean, it's We've talked about this book in a bunch of different episodes, and it's all, they all involve people we know were real and were involved in piracy, but the details a lot of times are very questionable. In an introduction to the, a modern printing of this work, Maximilian E. Novak wrote that the account of the crew and the captain that founded the Libertalia is one of the, quote, most remarkable and neglected works of fiction among Defoe's work. But there were, as we said, Tracy mentioned, there were definitely, in many cases, real people that these stories pulled in. And we don't, 
there's not a good way to verify or not. It's not like people that were living a privateering life were keeping great records, which is probably why some of these fanciful stories grew to fill the void of people that wanted to know about them. Uh, But there were a few pirate settlements in the 17th and 18th century. So the idea of Libertalia is not entirely outside the bounds of possibility. And Madagascar, as Tracy mentioned at the top of the show, was a popular destination for pirates, uh, looking for, at times, a bit of freedom and peace and sometimes to take a break from things. And also to attack other ships. (laughs) Well, yes. I mean, you you can't live by rest alone. No. (laughs) There was a lot of piratical action happening in that area. Ranters Bay in Madagascar was founded by pirate John Plantain in 1720, although he had more of a kingdom in mind than a democracy. And Ile Saint-Marie, which is four miles east of the island of Madagascar, is also believed to have been inhabited by pirates for almost a century in a much looser sort of setup than Misson's purported settlement. So there's a pirate cemetery on that island that continues to be a tourist attraction. And in 2001, author Kevin Rushby published a book called Hunting Pirate Heaven, which was part travelogue and part investigative journalism. And he himself was basically traveling the routes of privateers, seeking out the sites of the various legendary utopias that have been part of pirate lore. And he didn't find Libertalia, and no one else has any hard evidence or record of it either. It does live on in popular culture, though. It has shown up in lots of books and movies and video games, including Uncharted 4, And Fallout 4, I haven't played Uncharted 4, but in Fallout 4, it's kind of a cobbled-together raider settlement off the coast of Massachusetts. Yeah, it's not not so much of the Utopia Hugfest. (laughs) No, it's definitely not of Hugfest. If you go there, people shoot at you. Yeah, Uh, yeah, William Burroughs wrote about it at one point. It's shown up. It's one of those, like, handy kind of touchstones that people pull in when they're talking about piracy and privateering to give it a feel of authenticity, even though uh, that that feel may be based on something completely fictional. But it's a fascinating idea. I do think it's interesting to examine why someone would want to write, if, presuming it's fiction, to write a story that is so um, sort of progressive in this idea of all men being equal and, like, so anti-slavery. It's an interesting thing that that would be framed along with the idea of piracy and freedom <laughs> and from government. And we're going to goad this ship into attacking us so that we can then fight back and take their stuff. <laughs> right. Like I said, there's some moral flexibility baked into the whole thing. Uh, but that does become an interesting thing to look at. Like, why would that be such an appealing piece of fiction at a time that we don't often think of as being uh, really rooted in uh, all men being equal. It's fascinating, and it's a fun read. It's a little bit tricky to get through it because the language is clunky to our modern ear. Uh, There's some, you know, fast and loose use of capitalization, and (laughs) yeah, (laughs) Uh, so things, you're like, wait, is that a proper noun? Oh, no, it's not. He just likes the word prize. Okay. Uh, So, yeah, there's stuff like that to contend with, but it is a really fun read. Yeah, well, having read chunks of the book for research of various episodes of the podcast, it does tend to be a fun read, if not necessarily a, a historically accurate one. There's part of me, there, there is a doofy part of me that wants in my heart for some piece of evidence to appear 
to prove that everything in the general history is actually accurate and true because it would be mind-blowing if that were the case. Yeah, like, oh, uh, here is all of my notes, like my big file, my binder full right. of newspaper cl- clippings, etc., that I used to research this book. Yeah, no, I don't think... Yeah, oh, it'd be great, wouldn't it? be hilarious. Uh, my listener mail is not about piracy at all. It is about legal matters. <laughs> It is from our listener, Greg, and it is about our Elizabeth Jennings Graham episode. And he writes, Hi, dear Holly and Tracy. I'm a longtime listener, first time writing in. I love the episode about Elizabeth Jennings Graham. As a practicing attorney in New York City, listening to your podcast as I traveled from court in the Bronx to court in Brooklyn, I felt as though you were describing my everyday routine, even though the case you were describing was 150 years ago. An important point of clarification. I know this makes absolutely no sense, but the Supreme Court in the New York State Unified Court System is actually the lowest level of general jurisdiction, i.e. a trial court. The highest court in New York, even more confusingly, is called the Court of Appeals. I can't tell you how confusing that was in law school to have to reconcile that New York is the only state where court labels make no sense from the highest to lowest. So when the state Supreme Court judge in Brooklyn gave the jury instructions you describe, while they were surely notable, especially for that time, it was not actually the highest court in a state making such a pronouncement. The Supreme Court judge in this case being the functional equivalent of a trial judge in any other state. The pedantic lawyer in me literally had to stop the podcast and write this email before I could continue, lest the brain itch it wrought distract me from the rest of the episode. (laughs) Please keep up with all you do. I travel between courts on public transportation every day, sometimes as much as five hours, and your podcasts are a staple of ample train time. Uh, Thank you so much, Greg. I would never have known that. No, this uh, now I will be pedantic and say that we have also gotten notes about the court systems layers from other states that are not New York that also did not make sense, but they didn't make sense in a different way than this one. (laughs) <laughs> I know. Uh, it becomes really apparent how much there was never a discussion about uniformity. Yep. So, <laughs> and I don't, I think if they tried to make a uniform labeling system now, it would create utter chaos. Yeah. So, thank you for that point of clarification. And it's a um, <laughs> a uh, good thing to uh, have that fixed because I don't want to misrepresent Thank you so much, Greg. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can find us across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History. Uh, we are also available at mistinhistory.com, where every episode of the show from its very beginnings before Tracy and I were part of it are all there, as well as show notes for any of the shows that Tracy and I have worked on. So come and visit us at mistinhistory.com, and you can subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 